Support comes from Mosby Building Arts, a design-build company committed to remodeling the right way. Visit callmosby.com to get project inspiration for any room of your house. From the St. Louis Public Radio Newsroom, this is The Gateway. It's Thursday, November 18th. I'm Sarah Fenton in for Wayne Pratt. Ahead, tens of thousands of properties in St. Louis have racially restrictive covenants, even though they've been outlawed for decades. Most homeowners have no idea that racist language is still tied to their deed. It hadn't occurred to me that they would still be officially there. (laughs) Because, you know, it's 2021. (laughs) St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff investigated how racial covenants segregated neighborhoods and left a lasting impact. That's coming up, but first, these headlines. A number of St. Louis aldermen are pushing hard for a legal review of potential new ward maps for the city. The committee in charge of drawing new wards heard on Wednesday from aldermen who aren't members of the committee. Among them was 6th Ward Alderwoman Christine Ingracia. She says the board should spend the money it set aside to hire an attorney who specializes in redistricting. To make sure that the final map is um, something that can withstand a court challenge and that we've done our due diligence and the best that we could to make sure that um, these maps are as equitable and fair as possible. The board's president says there will be a review before members take a vote. He says it would not have made sense to analyze every draft. A new map has to be in place by December 31st. Redistricting is tricky this year because a 2012 charter change cut the number of wards in half. St. Louis area health officials say there are now more than enough COVID-19 vaccines to go around for the region's children. Many parents hurried to get their children vaccinated earlier this month. That's when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention approved the vaccine for children ages 5 through 11. St. Louis County Health Department Deputy Director Spring Schmidt says some parents waited for appointments due to initial limited supply. Schmidt says that rush has now tapered off. So we do expect this to be a little bit slower and more cautious among this age group. Um, But we did see a really good turnout in this first week. Schmidt says more than 5,000 children in St. Louis County received their vaccine within the first week of distribution. A group of community leaders are spearheading a new plan to revitalize Dalmer Boulevard. It's called the Dalmer Main Street Initiative. Residents, business owners, and other stakeholders of seven neighborhoods are working with the nonprofit Missouri Main Street Connection to rethink the corridor. Community Development Director Keith Wingy says they're looking for ideas from the community about economic development, design, and historic preservation projects. It's not my plan. It's not your plan. It's not the developer's plan. or It's the community's plan. So it's bringing the community together. What are the wants and needs? The revitalization plan is part of a pilot program that will run for the next three years. Missouri Main Street Connection is working on similar pilot programs with neighborhood groups in Dutchtown and Laclede's Landing. Finally, California's highest court on Wednesday rejected a challenge by St. Louis-based Monsanto to more than $86 million in damages to a couple who developed cancer after spraying the company's Roundup weed killer in their yards for 30 years. The state Supreme Court's denial of a review upholds an appeals court ruling in favor of the two people. In August, that court found Monsanto was at fault for knowingly marketing a product whose active ingredient, glyphosate, could be dangerous. 
Monsanto's parent company, Bayer, has said it would stop selling the current version of Roundup for home and garden use starting in 2023. It's replacing the glyphosate with another ingredient subject to federal and state approval. Racially restrictive covenants were used for decades to keep black families out of white neighborhoods. In 1948, a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision stemming from St. Louis made those covenants unenforceable, and 20 years later, they were outlawed nationally. But in the city of St. Louis, there are restrictive covenants still tied to about 30,000 properties, although most homeowners have no idea. St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff reports on how those covenants kept neighborhoods segregated and why they still matter today. Julia Allen lives with her cousin Sheila in a one-story brown brick house with a metal gate out front. It's about a half a mile east of where they grew up in the Ville neighborhood in the 1950s. She sits in her living room on a recent muggy morning telling me what it was like back then. It was a happy place. I call it my small town, okay? Even though it was a segregated neighborhood, we had everything that we needed within walking distance of that small area. Allen knows more than most about how racially restrictive covenants prevented black families from moving outside that segregated area. She gives tours as the co-founder of a nonprofit called For the Ville. But she never thought to check the records on the home where she lives with her cousin. Out of curiosity, I looked them up for her and filled her in on what I found. And there is a covenant. <laughs> Sheila, <laughs> you got a covenant on your house. <laughs> I'm not surprised. What now? You have a racial covenant on this house. Which means? Which means you weren't supposed to buy this house. <laughs> Sheila bought the home well after the 1948 U.S. Supreme Court decision ruled racially restrictive covenants unenforceable. And the Fair Housing Act made them illegal 20 years later. By the time she moved in, most people had forgotten about these old documents. But there are covenants still on the books. Isn't that something? Allen's home is one of tens of thousands of properties across St. Louis with a racially restrictive covenant. They were commonly put in place throughout the first half of the 1900s, peaking in the 1920s. Today, they're buried in land records at City Hall, often on hard-to-read microfilm. In most cities across the country, it's impossible to tell exactly how many covenants exist because most records aren't digitized and record-keeping practices vary. But University of Iowa history professor Colin Gordon stumbled across an index of all the restrictive covenants in St. Louis. At his home office in Iowa City, he sifts through boxes filled with carefully organized papers. So this is the, the document that we discovered that enabled us to get into it all. This is just kept by one of the title companies. Gordon and his team used that list to create the first comprehensive map of racial covenants in St. Louis. The map highlights the two key ways they were used. One strategy focused on subdivision covenants. Developers commonly attached these to deeds in new neighborhoods before the first house was even built. You know, they're aspirational and exclusionary, but there are no African-Americans living here. This is in stark contrast with the covenants put on existing homes near the Ville neighborhood. There, a real estate group urged white homeowners to sign petition restrictions. These prohibited people from selling or renting to black families in the future. The petition restrictions say it's to the mutual benefit of signers to, quote, preserve the character of the neighborhood. These are much more 
sort of defensive and frantic because the African-American community is growing. And, you know, the White Realtors Association and white homeowners are frantically trying to figure out how do we stop it? Gordon says it matters that these covenants are still on the books because they're largely to blame for the racial wealth gap that exists today. He says they helped create the Del Mar Divide and they laid the groundwork for other discriminatory practices such as zoning and redlining, which came later. Driving around Julia Allen's north side neighborhood, we pull up to an unassuming brick duplex at 4600 Lapidy Avenue. Okay, let's see, slow down a little bit. This is the Shelley house. This is the house that started it all. J.D. and Ethel Shelley, a black couple, moved to this home in the 1940s. Soon after, a white homeowner across the street sued based on a covenant. But with the help of the NAACP, the Shelleys took their case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and won. That's the landmark 1948 civil rights decision I've mentioned. The court ruled that states could not enforce racially restrictive covenants. It's historic. And most people don't even know about the Shelley House or restricted covenants or the laws that, you know, that, that made the change so African-Americans could move further north and outside of the Ville, outside of Mill Creek, outside of pruitt Igo. All of those were segregated African-American neighborhoods, but the court decision had unintended consequences too. It spurred large-scale white flight. Without racial restrictions, white families abandoned the north side for the suburbs. The mass exodus drained the tax base in North City. Property values collapsed. Later, many black families left too. Today, most of the homes that had covenants on them north of Del Mar are vacant lots. In southwest St. Louis, where new subdivisions were built with racially restrictive covenants from the ground up in the early to mid-1900s, white people bought the homes, and the neighborhoods have largely stayed white. Longtime St. Louis Hills resident Rick Pellink has always been interested in the history behind the charming neighborhood's pitched roofs and pink sidewalks. I mean, the architectural beauty of all these homes are all different. No, no two homes are, are alike, and they're just just beautiful homes, you know. He says the aesthetic of St. Louis Hills was created by design. When developer Cyrus Crane Wilmore plotted out the subdivisions, he attached a long list of restrictions. Sunrooms can only extend eight feet, no chickens or livestock, no commercial businesses, and no homeowners or renters other than those of the, quote, Caucasian race. Palink used to be a trustee in the neighborhood, and he says over time, all the restrictions lost their authority. They're just not relevant, so there's no purpose on updating them. It's a historical document, you know. Not everyone thinks of it as just historical, though. Clara Richter, another St. Louis Hills resident, pages through her home's deed and finds the associated covenant. Oh, goodness. She's heard of restrictive covenants before, but she didn't notice that language when she and her husband signed the paperwork to buy their home about five years ago. It hadn't occurred to me that they would still be officially there. <laughs> because, you know, it's 2021. <laughs> Richter says it's disorienting to see it attached to her home's deed, but she says that feeling is necessary. People should experience that discomfort and then do something about it. You know, history can be ugly, and we got to look at the ugliness, too. We can't just say, oh, that's horrible. Um, you know, but I feel like it should be, like, in a museum, maybe, or in school books, but maybe not still a legal thing attached to this land. The impact that racially restrictive covenants have had on neighborhoods in St. Louis is far-reaching, and undoing their damage will take a long time. 
but Richter hopes amending the covenant on her home will be a first step toward making the neighborhood a more welcoming place for all people. I'm Corinne Ruff, St. Louis Public Radio. This is the first story in a two-part series on racially restrictive covenants in St. Louis. Tune in on Friday to hear what people are doing about them. To see a map of the 30,000 properties in St. Louis that have covenants tied to them, and to check whether your home might be one of them, go to stlpr.org. Our Maria Altman edited that piece. The executive editor of St. Louis Public Radio News is Shula Newman. Music by Ryan McNeely of Adult Fur. I'm Sarah Fenton in for Wayne Pratt. This has been The Gateway. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.